If you have your Bibles, go with me to chapter 6, verse 10. We are going to crank away, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to jump right in and, uh, and push right on through this text, okay? So, chapter 6, verse 10, read with me. It says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Father, let's pray that your words come alive to us this morning, that you would change our hearts, it would be you speaking, not me, that we'd see more clearly your face through the words of your revelation and through your author, Kohelet, in this book. It's in his name, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here what we have is really what scholars believe to be kind of the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're like, wow, we're like nine weeks in, second half. Great, we're on a good roll for 18 weeks here. Yeah, something like that. Uh, here uh, is said to be what, what they believe. The, the Masoretes uh, were uh, basically Hebrew scholars around the 6th through 10th century A.D. Uh, they were, these guys were some, uh, basically the ones contributed to uh, or were contributed with the credit of basically establishing the Hebrew text uh, and the Old Testament. And they um, believe this to be the, the center of, of the book. Uh, this kind of begins a different phase uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, and I, and I, and I think there's, there's good wisdom and good insight to that. Um, here, what we have is kind of the major theme is this. Since God has sovereignly set the times... In times of adversity, people should look for what is relatively good. Should look for what is relatively good. Now, let me say this. We're going to hit a lot in this text. Um, I want to encourage you to, as we're going, uh, particularly once we get to his contrasting of wisdom and folly, as we kind of get into this, a little bit of poetry here that he has later in chapter 7, or the beginning of chapter 7, um, to encourage you to take, you know, write down the verse and take down some notes so that you can go back and read that verse uh, in light of maybe some new understanding. Um, but the major theme is that since God has sovereignly set the times, 
In times of adversity, people should look for what is relatively good. So Kohelet's goal, if you will, is to encourage those who are suffering, those who are facing adversity, to look for that which is relatively good during the times of adversity. Um, One thing we have to be careful is how does adversity fit in our life, in our comfortable American life. How does adversity, and, and I don't know how uh, to apply that to each one of our lives. It's going to look somewhat different for each of us. Um, but I do want us to consider, I want you to consider the most recent time of adversity in your life. Think about the recent, most recent time of suffering. Um, let's get beyond McDonald's getting your order wrong, Okay. Uh, I know some of us think that that's just the roughest thing in the world. Uh, let's get beyond your boss getting on you because you messed something up. Okay? Adversity. A, a time of suffering. A time uh, where you were facing a painful situation. A time where sin of this world is causing you great vexation. A time being attacked different examples of adversity. And, and as you think about that, I want you to consider your perspective during that time. It's really Ecclesiastes has been a lot about perspective. And once again, what was your perspective during that time? What were your thoughts during that time? What were your conclusions maybe that you were drawing during that time. I'm not talking about afterwards. We're talking about in the mist. What were some thoughts? Think about those. Let me ask you this. One last question. Did you struggle to see anything good? Matter of fact, looking back on the situation, did you fail to see anything good? So the theme that we're... That that Kohelet is building, I believe, in this text, that since God has sovereignly set, since He is in charge of everything, He has sovereignly ordained everything that takes place. See, we conveniently like to stop that when it comes to suffering. And we we want to we want to in our minds keep God's hands clean. Um, so we kind of divorce Him from those aspects of life. But that's clearly not what the text teaches us. So, with that said, um, let's move forward with this thought. At the end of chapter 6 and verse 10, the idea here is that our words cannot fix the reality in which we find ourselves. We talk a lot about words, but... We're, we're going to talk more specifically, what does he mean in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 here? First of all, the question overall in this first couple verses is the idea of who knows what is best for mortals? Who knows what is best for us? And we're going to discover who knows what is best or who knows what is good for us. First of all, God, the first thing we need to keep in mind that we learn here is that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. Kohelet here is referring to God naming things um, in, in his creation like day, night, sky, earth, etc. To give the name to a thing is to make it exist and hence also its dependence upon him as well. Um, what, is, what he's saying is that whatever is happening in the present has already been predetermined by God. What is, he's, whatever has come to be has already been named. It had already been spoken that this is the way it was going to be. Reading on in that verse, he says, And it is known what man is. God knows what human beings are. He created them. He named them Adam, right? 
He named them. He knows what they are. Psalm, Psalms 103.14 says, For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that humans are weak and finite. God declared in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God is sovereign over all. Us, mere creatures, cannot dispute that which God has ordained. Read on with me. And that He is not able to dispute with one stronger than He. So this creature who was created, who God is sovereign over all, cannot dispute anything with God. He is strong. Mere earthlings cannot dispute the creator of the universe. See, see I know in our very God is near culture that we in, we emphasize the God is near aspect, I think, to the to the detriment of the God is mighty and transcendent. We lose that reverence and awe that comes from understanding that I am made from dust, and to dust I shall return, and He is my Creator. Right? We lose some of that. But here is a very strong reminder. Isaiah 45.9, listen to these words. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Think about that. Paul echoes something similar in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Hmm. Mere creatures are not able to dispute with their Creator. And that's Ecclesiastes' point here in verse 10. Verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? What he's saying here is arguing with God doesn't help. We're in this reality. Arguing with God does not help. Now, we see examples of arguing. We see, we see very clearly in Psalms that David's going back and forth and back and forth. And, and I, see, I think what we see there in David is just our uh, manliness, our, our humanity. We see us struggling back and forth. But he very practically says, look, it doesn't do any good. Your words, the more words are more vanity. He says God has sovereignly set the times, a time to be born, right? There's a time to die. God has set these things. The more words one uses in arguing with God, the more vanity. That's what he's saying. I mean, think about that. So if I'm going to keep issuing these disputes to God for why God has established whether there's suffering in my life or anything else of that matter, what he's saying is it's, it's useless, so here we have us speaking breath that is pointless. It is a waste of time. What is the advantage? There is no advantage. There is no profit to be gained. Wow. Did some of your guys' prayer lives just like hit rock bottom right now? Like, what is the point? Well, um, We'll keep working through this, okay? Let's keep moving along. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who can tell man what will be after him, for, uh, will be after him under the sun? Human beings live but a few days on this earth. Does anybody think otherwise? No? We live but a few days on this earth. Their, their life, our life, he's saying here is vain. It's literally, he's saying literally a breath. I mean, think about a breath. Everybody been out in the cold air 
like really cold air and you're warm and you send hot air out of your mouth, what happens? It's there for how long? Just a few seconds, right? It's out there for just a few. And that is his idea here, that man's life is short. He says in Psalm 144, verse 4, Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. We are here one day and gone the next. And again, the key question is, who knows what is good for mortals? Who knows who, what is good for us? Only God knows what is best, what is good for man. Only God knows. Only God knows. No one but God. No human beings knows what is good for people. We must accept submissively what God sends to us. This reminds me of that scene in Bruce Almighty. Uh, anybody seen Bruce Almighty? Yeah, yeah. I, I've referenced this scene before just because, yeah. Anyways, so he's, he's walking out and, and, and he says that famous raid, uh, smite me, almighty smiter, right? Uh, and uh, give me a sign. And the construction truck with all the signs drives right by him. Um, I mean, it's kind of the picture, like, right, he, he's going through this world of difficult, <laughs> and we struggle with adversity as well, just maybe at different levels, and we sometimes have the audacity to dispute with the Creator that which He has placed us in. Now, we're not even referencing making bad choices, choices and putting ourselves, you know, still, that falls underneath God's sovereignty, but God knows what is best for him, and that's his point here. So back to the text. He says, For who will tell man what will be after him under the sun? No one can tell human beings what will be after them. That's his point. The teacher means to say that no one can tell us what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows that. Only God knows. He says the future is hidden. I mean, Jesus himself even speaks about not knowing the day of the return, right? So there's a future that is hidden from us. So Kohelet here, here's where we're at. Kohelet has described for us our situation in order to help us see that through wisdom, we can find some good in the midst of these situations. And that's where we're getting ready to head. So he just set the ground rules for the situation in which we find ourselves. God is sovereign. We who are we to dispute the Creator? And no one knows what is best for man except for God. That is the stage. And he's setting the, the platform for us, if you will, to help us understand that through wisdom we can and should find good in the midst of adversity and these situations. So he now gives us a series of Proverbs uh, that repeat nine times the word good or more good. So it's clear his, his goal here is to help us see that through wisdom there can be good found in adversity. And let me challenge you this as we continue to work through. Some of you may be going through adversity now. Uh, and, and if you are, make sure you are sharing with people what's going on so that we can pray for you and encourage you and so people can go through it with you. Um, one of the biggest lies of Satan is that you're alone, right? Or that you're the only person. So then in isolation, your chances of failing is much greater. I mean, that's, that's, Satan's good at that, right? Um, but realize you're not alone. That's why our family is here, to help each other through those times and through those things. The other side is if you don't consider anything you're going through right now as adversity, um, be prepared. Take good notes. Um, it could be around the corner. We don't know what tomorrow holds, right? What God has planned. So, moving on to chapter 7, verse 1. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. So, still, in this reality, there is relatively good to be realized. And that's kind of the framework that we're going to work underneath that point. 
as we move forward in this text, that in this reality, there is still good to be realized. So in this reality of where God is sovereign, He has determined the times, yet we find ourselves in suffering, we cannot dispute the King, and yet God knows what is best. In the midst of that, there is relative good to be realized. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. As we work through these, I hope that as we are working through this, that you're, we're attentive enough to realize the craziness of what he was saying. Like, he, he just said, he said the day of death is better than the day of life. And, and I know the, the spiritual ones of us are going, well, that's because he gets to be with Jesus. Yeah, I don't think he was thinking that at this moment. Um, the day of death is better than the day of birth. What a statement. I mean, what do you think of when you think of the day of birth? What do you guys do at the day of birth? You celebrate, right? It's awesome. Yeah. Smoke your blue cigars because you're a good little Baptist, right? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know what I mean. It's, yeah, token on some bubble gum, I know. Uh, what do you think of when you think of birth? Celebration, right? What do you all do uh, on the day of death? De- Greg says it depends who it is. That's, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> I'm going to let him take credit for that. It's really funny. <laughs> if I ever preach this again, I'm going to say, Greg said. <laughs> what do you think of the day of death? Come on, talk to me. What do you think? Sad? Okay. True, true. Hmm. Say that again. It, it could be. Yeah, it could be. could be. I think generally, I, I, I do agree. I think there are circumstances. I do think... When we think of the day of, of, a, of a lovely saint passing, you know, there is a, there is a mix there of bittersweet. There's a, there's a selfish bitterness because we want them here with us. Um, but there is um, this sweetness about them entering into the presence of the king, right? But generally speaking, there is a sadness with the day of death. And a, and a happiness with the day of birth. So why does the preacher flip this around? Why does Kohelet flip this around? He said something similar to this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Uh, verses 1 and 2. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. So the dead, he says here, are better off than the living because they no longer have to witness the injustice, pain, and tears we see on this earth. So he flips this around because the day of birth is the beginning of one's witnessing all the pain of this life. And death marks the end of this suffering. See that? We'll piece some of these together as we go, but hold that thought right there. Let me inject this phrase. Learn to treasure each day. Learn to treasure each day. And we're going to take from this, and then we're going to continue working. But I want you to keep that thought about death and birth, and how birth is the beginning of this vexation and vanity of which he's been talking about now for six chapters. Let's move on. Chapter 7, verse 2. He says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. How many of you love going to a funeral home? Anybody? Yeah, dude. Not me. Not me. Yeah. Uh, how about going to a wedding? Yeah, it's all just booze, right? 
What? Oh, if it's full mass, yeah, that would be fun. I've never been to one, so I decline. No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> so, is it really better to go to a funeral than to a feast? Is it really better? Why? He says, "This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart." I mean, think about this. We all know that we will die someday, right? Anybody here think otherwise? Anyone here trying to discover the fountain of youth and a pill that would prolong our vanity and misery? If you do, stop. At least don't put it in my water. But here's the deal. We don't like to, how many of us think strategically each day about our inevitable death? Do you? Every day? No? No? So, death is not something that we long to think about, at least most of us. And yet it's a reality that we cannot deny. And he says that we cannot deny this reality when we enter into a funeral home. Let's talk about this other phrase before we piece this together. He says, and the living will lay it to heart. What's he mean by that? He means that this, when entering into a funeral home, faced with the reality of death, that the living will keep that reality in mind. That they will live their days according to this knowledge of this coming death. That's what he's saying. They will lay this to heart. They will keep this in mind. The living, they will live with death the back of their mind. Basically, he's saying that death, and the next point there on your thing is that death must be accepted fully in order to live the good life, however minimal it may seem. Death must be accepted fully in order to live the good life. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. So it's better for us to live life with death in the background, like we see it. We're going to talk about why in a few moments. It's interesting. Uh, doing a little bit of research and you know what monasteries are monks you know dedicating their life to the study of of god's word and in isolation and oftentimes quietness and, uh, it's interesting some eastern monasteries um, not only bury their deceased monks but then later will go back and dig those monks remains back up and put them on display in the monastery even to the point of some of them making the skulls available to be touched. Why? Trying to be like morbid, gross, like all of us are like, oh, yes, I see some ladies' faces like, ugh. Why? So that those monks would be reminded, even at the touching of the skull, reminded that death is coming. And to live life in light of that. And that's the idea that he has in mind here is that we would live life in light of that death that is coming. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So here's the point about the funeral home. It is better for us to be faced with the reality of death, which can lead to the wisdom of counting each day, Instead of living in the ignorance is bliss stage. So he's not only saying that it's good for us to think about the day of death and let it through wisdom modify our behavior. Let it through wisdom change the, the, the effort that we put into doing what God has called us to do. But he's saying 
do this like the wise will do this. This is strategic. Not only is it okay, but it is a good, good idea. So in the times of adversity, think about it, there is still some good. In the light of death, death is coming. We don't think of death as necessarily a good thing. But he's saying in, in light of death coming, there is a good thing. What is the good thing? The good thing is, is us living life as God's called us to. Living life in light of this death that's coming. Let's read on. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Dude, is this dude weird or what? The key, I think, is understanding laughter in this passage. What are you thinking when you think of laughter? Happiness, enjoyment, right? He doesn't mean that here. What he means, because if he did, he would, he's used enjoyment and those kind of things. He probably would have used the same phrasing. He means to behave in a frivolous manner. So this laughter. So it is better, sorrow is better than behaving in a frivolous manner. Why is sorrow better? He says because sadness of face makes the heart glad. What? So if my face is a frown, you know, right? Then that's going to make my heart happy. I mean, it's so sorrow is better than laughter because sadness of countenance or sadness of face makes the heart glad. So how in the world does sadness of the face make the heart glad? Just think about that for a second. How does sadness of face make the heart heart glad? Think about what we just talked about. Okay. What did he just talk about the verse before? Death. Death. So we're still in that we're still in that same context. Yeah, I mean you're 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 very close. Still in that same context. See, so so here's the deal. The house of mourning forces us to face the reality of death. That's the idea of the, the funeral home here, which will teach us to treasure our days. So the sadness of face makes the heart glad because it enables us to seize each day and live it to the full. So the sadness of face is in correlation to the realization of the inevitability of a future death coming. Carpe diem, yes. Carpe diem. Let's read a few other verses. Matthew chapter four, verse Matthew, cha- Matthew chapter five, verse four it says, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Luke chapter six, verse twenty-one b says, "Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh." James one, verses two through five says, "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect." that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So again, living in light, there is good to be seen, but it only comes from wisdom and reflection um, in these situations. Let's read on in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4. It says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. So the heart here refers to basically the, uh, the center of the human being, right? The, the center, uh, rep- the heart represents the seed of intelligence or volition. Is kind of the idea that, that he has here. Now, he is saying that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Wow. I mean, once again, in the house of mourning, like, that we wanted to be our best in the good house. The house of mourning, what we see here, kind of the house of mourning has become almost like this schoolhouse of teaching us the essence of life. The house of mourning, teaching us these things. So the wise live their lives with the inevitability of their death in mind, while the fool avoids thinking about it. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of fools 
is in the house. So the first four verses that we talked about, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, the teacher has focused on the very topic most people try to avoid, death. Death. When we think about death is punishment for human disobedience, is it not? Death, punishment for human disobedience. Death is tragic. But the teacher shows us that the wise... He shows us that the wise can detect some good even in death. The wise realize that in death, it provokes a life of greatest potential. So let me ask you this question. Do you live like every moment matters? Hmm? You know, we just came out of Halloween, often a celebration of death. Uh, but it's really quite counterproductive. Because Halloween is kind of like laughing in the face of death, is it not? And what, is, what does the book of Ecclesiastes tell us to do in the face of death? To shudder. To go, that day's coming for me. To see its reality. Not to laugh at it. To look and go, hmm. That's going to be me someday. You know, and, and I'm not on a crusade here to like for us to cancel cable TV and all that stuff. But, I mean, let's just think about this, all right? So if we become desensitized to death, what does that do to us? We, how are we going to live in light of this that's coming? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So, is your life, moving on in this verse, ask you another question, moving on in this passage. Is your life open to the rebuke of the wise, or is your life open to the song of the fool? So as we continue working through this text, look at verse 5. That it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So he's continuing this contrasting of the wise and the fool's he basically is saying that the rebuke of the wise is like constructive criticism. You guys have heard that phrase, constructive criticism? It's something that, you know, there, we, have, we hear criticism all the time. Like, that's what we hear on the media. You know, everybody's got a, a critique and nobody's got an answer. Everybody wants to bash on everybody, but no one wants to help. I mean, that's, that's criticism, that, and that doesn't come from the wise. The wise give constructive criticism, and those who are wise recognize that that's constructive criticism. Um, and whose purpose, in this giving this constructive criticism, his purpose is to correct behavior patterns that are morally questionable or detrimental. So that's kind of the idea here that he's talking about, that it's better for, to hear the rebuke of the wise. So Proverbs, let's look at this verse, Proverbs 12.1. says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is what? Stupid. Wow. I've I've considered like posting that like on my windshield of my car, uh, you know, not uh, so that I could see it, okay, and be rem- not 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 for anybody else. Uh, although that might you know put it in reverse like the ambulance you know on the front of the vehicle so people can see it in the rearview mirror. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry, that's bad bad humor. So whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. Moving on, I think that speaks for itself. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is vanity. Okay, so here's the picture. We're listening to, we have two different groups. We have the rebuke of the wise, and then we have the, the laughter and the foolishness of the fools. And he says here that the laughter of the fools, and he says here that their laughter is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. What happens to thorns in a fire? What happens? You think? Come on, don't we have any Boy Scouts in here? What? Well, they do turn to ashes. The question is, how quickly do they turn to ashes? And what do they do in the process? Have you ever burnt, anybody here burnt brush? Like, like wood, you know, burns, you know, typically like, like big chunks of solid wood, you know, like a big oak tree, you know, like those burn and burn and burn and smolder and burn. And 
If you burn brush, it's one big fire very quickly. Woof. And pop, 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 pop. And then all of a sudden it very quickly comes back out and is very quickly smothered and put out. And that's what he's saying. If you're listening to fools, that their laughter and their advice, their influence in your life is like this big fire that goes woof. You know, and, and what do we do when we see that fire? We go, wow, that's cool, that's big, that's, wow, it's hot, wow, you know, that's neat, and pop, 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 it's cool, it's a great show. And then all of a sudden it's gone. And we're right back in the same place where we were, if not worse of a place. And he says, if you're listening to fools, that's what you're going to get. It is like the crackling of thorns underneath a pot. Basically saying that fool's laughter as opposed to a wise person's rebuke is a sudden flame. It displays a display of sparks that is quickly spent and easily poured out. Or easily put out, sorry. A fire that's easily put out. Let me ask you this question. Have you gathered around yourself the songs of fools or the rebuke of the wise? Do you look at your friends that are around you and go, wow, they just display great wisdom? Well, you know, they have some good things to say to me every once in a while. Okay. Does their life display great wisdom? Because they can tell you all they want, but does their life display great wisdom? I mean, think about this. I mean, some of us are being fed foolishness and we don't even realize it. And then when someone comes along to give us godly, wise rebuke, we respond with stupidity. Moving on. He says, do not be quick to respond, but patient and wise. Do not be quick to respond, but patient and wise. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. So the end of a thing should be understood as basically the outcome, uh, the outcome of the thing. The, the patient in spirit are in it for the long haul. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a situation and you're like, man, I just can't wait for this to be over? Right? Anybody been there? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, brain went somewhere else. Uh, how many of you in that moment ran, like left, decided to have no part of it? I'm not talking about like sin and you flee from temptation. I'm talking about you were in a trial, a situation that's that you should have stuck around, but you found yourself leaving. He says here, the patient spirit... Basically, they're in it for the long haul. They're willing to wait on passing judgment until they see the end of a thing. So when adversity strikes, they will bear it patiently and wait for the outcome. That's the idea. So you're in adversity, patiently waiting for the outcome. Instead of fleeing it. Remember the song, we haven't sung it, sang it in a while, sung it in a while uh, called um, uh, Rain It Down. Typically when we think of rain it down, we're thinking like, Jesus, glory, rain down on us. But that song, is, what he's talking about is the suffering that is inevitable, that will be coming. He talks about it as if, that song talks about it as if the storm, we see it ahead. And instead of running from the storm, we run to the storm because we see the good in the storm. We know that it's what God has planned for us. And that's what he says, rain it down. He's not talking about rain down your loving kindness, God. Like he's talking about raining down the suffering the situation, the adversity. Um, That's a pretty big prayer to pray. So the end of a thing. So when adversity strikes, they will bear it patiently and wait for the outcome. Um, How do you think emotions play into this role? What kind of role do you think emotions play? Do you think they could have anything to do with the lack of wisdom and knee-jerk reactions? Let's read on, verse, verse 9. It says, uh, uh, let, me, I mean, let me 
reread verse 8, and then we'll read verse 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient is better, is it the, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. So fools here are not patient. They quickly fly off the handle. How many of us have quickly flown off the handle in anger? Yeah? Yeah? Yes, absolutely. Let's, let's read Proverbs chapter 12, verse 6. It says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once. Hmm. Uh, this big words. James kind of alludes to this in James chapter 1 verse 19. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What he's saying is that the fool nourishes their anger until it explodes. They, they, they feel it, and then they begin to uh, nourish it and, and create this culture in which this anger can grow and then eventually it's out of their hands and they cannot control it. Um, for some of us this happens over a long period of time and some of this happens in a short period of time. So imagine, imagine a conversation with your spouse. You're upset at what he or she has said. You continue to argue knowing that you're only feeding the emotion of anger inside of you. And you continue and you continue and you continue until... I mean, that's just one application among many. I mean, think about, think about this in application to other aspects or other emotions. You know, are we culturing these things? Are we nurturing these things? Uh, not culturing. Are we nurturing these things? Um, but the anger here, he says, is of a fool. For the anger lodges itself into the heart. It, it takes root. And then the fool does nothing to take it out. And then it takes over. It explodes. Moving on, chapter 7, verse 10. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Huh. Um, I heard a preacher say one time, you know, the days of Adam, like if you were talking about the, why were the former days better than this? Like we all want to go back like 50 years. Uh, that was the good old days. Uh, and I heard a preacher say one time, you know, after Adam's sin, it's been a succession of a lot of very bad days. So if we're going to go back to the good old days, then we've got to go back a lot further than 50 years uh, to when mom and dad slept in separate bedrooms. Um, just on TV, right? I mean, at some point, they had to go, okay, good. All right, verse 10, he says, so why are the former days, don't ask this, don't ask this. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. If it's not from wisdom, it's from what? It's from foolishness that you ask this question. So in the midst of adversity, it's easy for us to complain. Right? It's easy for us in the midst of this vexation, this adversity, it's easy for us to say, well, why were the former days better than why? It's easy for us to complain. Um, it's interesting, just this past week, I, uh, let me make a comment here. I hate Facebook, right? I, I just absolutely hate Facebook. Like, I, I want to rage. But it's also very insightful um, as, a, as a preacher, as a teacher, to, to kind of know what's going on in people's lives. It is incredibly insightful. I mean, it's just like you're pouring your sin right there, you know? And uh, it is very, uh, yeah. As a shepherd of this body, it's a, it's a good tool. I just hate getting on it. I get depressed. Every time I get on it, not because, well, some of it's because people are complaining, but some like, oh, I, I just preached on it like three weeks ago. Like, what are we thinking? You know, I just want to start sending emails like, Brrr! sermon 
5, less, you know, or this verse, chapter 6, verse 7, read it. Um, but, uh, you know, I was just noticing this past week, like, we have some great examples of this in our Facebook statuses. You can go read your own and see if I'm talking about you. Uh, so, uh, or use guys. It might be multiple people. But uh, my, my, my point is, in adversity, it's easy for us to complain. Um, and is the text speaking of us right there? Is he speaking of you? Because here's the deal. When our comments line up, when we line our comments and our complaining up to the text, guess what you're called and what I'm called? A fool. Wow. I don't know about you, but I don't want that on my resume. Hmm. I'm not getting any amens on this one, right? What are we doing? Here, here's the deal. Because here, here's, where this, here's where this takes us. What are we doing in the process of expressing our dissatisfaction with the present? What are we doing in that moment? Hmm? We're showing, first of all, that we're impatient. And he says, for that, we are foolish. We're also showing that we are not willing to wait to see how things turn out in the end. Again, for that, we are foolish. To complain about the crappiness of the times is to show a lack of patience and self-control, which is the mark of a fool rather than a wise person. Hmm. All right, moving on, pressing on. Wisdom provides a protection in this life that nothing else can. Let me say this. Bio, uh, we're not having Bible study this week. We're going to take this lesson and move it to next week, uh, I think. Uh, we'll see where, uh, what we've got, because we need to really discuss some of these things in-house gathering. Cool? Cool? Okay, cool. So wisdom provides a protection in this life that nothing else can. So verse 11 says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So when we hear the word inheritance, we need to think of land. When we think of inheritance here, we need to think of the idea of land. When God gave Israel the promised land, the land was given to individual families. Portions of land was given to individual families. Look at Numbers chapter 26, verse 53. But each family, except for the Levites, received an inheritance of land. The land that they were given was to be handed down from generation to generation. It was to be kept in the family. It was, they were not even allowed to sell the land except for the crop years remaining until the year of Jubilee. You can look that up in Levi chapter, or Leviticus chapter 25, verse 13. Uh, so in, in, think about this. In an agricultural society, land was everything. Land meant food, land meant security, land meant stability. So the inheritance of land meant that one could survive times of adversity. That's the idea being painted here. So wisdom is as good as an inheritance, is what he's saying here. So through wisdom, one can survive the times of adversity. So what's this phrase he says in the sentence? He says, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of Money. So think about this. Money can, to some extent, protect people from hardship. Right? So you think about, you know, these times, the economic distress. If you had money uh, and, and were able to cushion yourself during that time, then it maybe was not quite as hard. So it protected you from some hardship in that time. Um, so in time of famine, money can safeguard from hunger. I mean, if we're back in this context. At a time of unemployment, money can shelter people from losing their homes, back in our context. Money can protect people to some extent from adversity. And what he's saying is similarly, wisdom can protect people from the hard realities of life. But here's the deal. Wisdom has an advantage over money. What's he say? Go back to the verse. He says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
So money by itself does not give life. It actually leads to what? Darkness. But wisdom gives life. How? This wisdom leads to a higher understanding of life. An eternal perspective on life. A life that cannot be snuffed out quickly. So, as we move on here, we've seen that there is still relative good even in suffering. So the day of death is better than the day of life. The house of mourning better than the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. He also warned that um, oppression up, up earlier can, can make the wise foolish. We kind of moved through some of that real quickly. But he also warned against being quick to anger, and instead he recommended patience. Um, finally, he, is, he has shown the advantage of wisdom. It protects from the harshness of life. Um, wisdom gives a more vigorous form of life. Last main point says, consider the work of God in times of adversity. Consider the work of God in times of adversity. So God is the, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God is the sovereign God who has made all things. Some of these things appear crooked to us, right? Some of these things appear crooked to us. Here we have death, mourning, sorrow, we experience these things as crooked, but these crooked things are, are to the work of God. They're under His sovereign control. No one can make straight the crooked things that God has made crooked. We have no choice but to look at the big picture and accept all suffering as coming from the hand of God. Now, we could talk later about how, how does that fit. Like, how does that fit theologically into... God and suffering, and so you're, so you're telling me like Sandy uh, was under God's sovereign control? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you say the Holocaust was under God's control? Absolutely. You say the loss of that young child of my co-worker or family member? Yes. That was under God's sovereignty. Let's move forward. Verse 14. It says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But what about the day of adversity? His advice is that God has made one as well as the other. God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. So, like, next to your best life now, we should have, like, your crappy life now. Both authored by God, right? Like, that might be a better companion to, to this. We simply have to trust God who holds the future. I, I know that that's, like, a very bold crazy statement to make in light of the adversity and the travesty that we face in this life. Um, but He's God. He's God. So let me ask you this question. Do you have the wisdom to see the good in adversity? Do you have the wisdom to see the good in adversity? Do you have wisdom around you to help you see the good in adversity? Do you live life with death at the back of your mind. Not in a paralyzing sense, right? I mean, some of us can like look at that and go, oh, you know, it's wheat thins and, you know, <laughs> and I'm just going to sit here and chill in my boxers until time. Like, not in that sense. In the sense that God has given us this task to live this life. And He has given us tragedy and death, in a sense, as a reminder to treasure these days. And, and, and not just, guys, not just in a sentimental, let's treasure our families, although that be true as well. But as in, 
are you making wise decisions with your time, in your job, with your family, with what you are studying and learning? I mean, these are, are, you, are you making the most of that? It, it's not just a, you could have a good life versus a, a terrible life, or a better life versus a terrible life. It's, it's a matter of, this is, brings honor to God, and this brings dishonor to God. This is the way of the wise. Our God is wise. This is the way of the fool. Our God is not a fool. So, ponder that question. Um, I want you to watch this video. Uh, then we're, we're going to worship together for just a few minutes and sing about our God who is holy. Uh, but I want you to watch this video. Some of you may know who Matt Chandler is. Matt Chandler is a pastor of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, this was uh, two or three years ago at Thanksgiving. Uh, dude, this dude's like in shape, just as healthy as healthy could be, right? He could run miles a day and, you know, um, and over Thanksgiving had family over and the man falls to the ground in a seizure, later to find out that he had brain cancer. Um, and it's real neat. If you want to Google uh, and look up some of the progression of that, like the words that this man gave to the, his, to the body that he shepherds days before brain surgery are astounding. Um, and uh, these are just a few of his words that relate very closely to what we're talking about today, about living life through wisdom with death. I mean, this man's got death not on the back of his mind, and no pun intended, but it's on the front of his mind. Um, death is right there facing, staring him right in the face. And uh, listen to these words. As we watch this, uh, the band's going to come forward so we can sing. So watch this.